0: You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Good morning and welcome. You are with Counterculture here with Marie, and it is with great pleasure that I bring to you Professor Peter Boghossian. I could call you Professor Emeritus now, can't I? Now that you've ever died?
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of believing that arguments should stand or fall, not based upon a title, but on their merit.
0: Uh, Pete from Portland. Hello, Pete from Portland. First-time caller to RCR. How are you?
1: I'm absolutely fantastic. I I left Portland because it was a cesspool. Uh, Although I I I will say that in the last uh, six seven months, it's cleaned itself up, which is another story. Tent camping, tent camping. When you when 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 a society allows tent camping, it's the beginning of the end. But the fentanyl crisis, but it's not just Portland, it's all West Coast cities. I was just in San Francisco and LA and oh my God, I could not believe it. But anyway, long story short, I moved out. I don't have to see that any of that stuff anymore. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I also moved out for security concerns and I feel great.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So the first thing I want to know is did your bathrobe collection go with you? Because it is prodigious. And is it because you like to channel your inner philosophical Greek or is it you just love bathrobes?
1: I always When I'm at home, I'm almost always in a bathrobe. Uh, it's just most comfortable, and I have my laptop with me, and I basically work in a bath. I lay down, work in a
0: bathrobe with a laptop. It's a good life. Mike has got that on film. It has now been a yes. memorialized for all time. Of course, we're here to talk about philosophy and culture. Look, I haven't done tertiary education. I've got a degree from the University of Life, so common sense has always been my guiding light. Please answer for me why some some of the smartest people can be so dumb.
1: Wow, there's a lot to unpack in that. So first of all, you dodged a bullet by not going to higher education, particularly now. I think if if you had graduated 10, 15 years ago, you would have been just fine. But you dodged a bullet. This is a hard concept to really grasp. But it's better to just look at a wall than it is to learn something that's a backward roadmap from reality something that takes you away from reality in other words it's better to not do anything at all than it is to learn something that's false and so we have systems now in the universities that are literally entire wings of university architecture are predicated upon an ideology that is simply not true it is untethered to reality it is not falsifiable it doesn't even rise to the level actually of being not true it's just it's some some combination of, of a kind of madness, a specificity of madness. So here's the bottom line for this. I've spoken about this. I actually gave a talk at the Ramsey Center in Australia about mm-hmm. this. Michael Shermer in his book, Why People Believe Weird Things, has a chapter, why do smart people believe weird things? So this answers your question directly. Smart people believe weird things because they're better at coming up with conclusions. They're better at coming up with reasons, good reasons for bad ideas smart groups of smart people i published a paper on this you could link it in it's called diluted departments when you get groups of people together in that fashion particularly in an, ac- in an academic context what happens is that those people in mass become better than a single individual and you have additional problems that promotion and tenure which is a job for life Every professor's achievement, their golden dream is to achieve tenure. And when they achieve tenure, that means they have a job for life. But to do that, they have to publish. And to publish, they have to write things that are morally fashionable. And if you don't write things that are morally fashionable, you won't be published. That's less so in the hard sciences and more true in anything else, particularly if it ends in studies, gender studies, black studies, Chicano studies, etc. So you have a combination of groups of smart people getting together, to serve the dominant moral orthodoxy, them getting re- some kind of professional reward or re- remediation for doing such, and weeding out people who don't believe that. So then you're only around people who believe whatever is normative, whatever the morally fashionable is. And there's, there are other pieces too that I could go into if you want, but that, that's the basic idea. There's, there's one more big piece, but that's the basic idea.
0: Hmm. So this is where you have bad ideas that are based on being part of the Cool Kids Club, essentially, that then gets reinforced by other people that then cite those bad ideas and put that out there. And I think you coined the term, was it academic laundering?
1: Idea laundering. Yeah. That was the piece that I was going to mention. I I could talk about that, but it's idea laundered. So, So basically it's like money laundering, but with ideas. And so what happens is, if a, and there's a piece that your your viewers can see that I published in the Wall Street Journal about this. So an academic has a moral impulse. He writes about that moral impulse in a journal. He articulates that. The journal editors also share that moral impulse. It goes in as a moral impulse, and it goes out as knowledge. And then those articles formulate the basis of public policy so public policy decisions are then predicated upon not what people they're they're not predicated on things that are true or even things that are justified in any any sense they're predicated upon the moral musings of people who are academics
0: right so is this where the genesis for grievance studies came from for you
1: the genesis of it yeah uh, no the the genesis of that came because i when i was involved in the new atheist movement i Understood that to delegitimize a canon or a body of scholarship, to de- delegitimize a belief, you'd have to delegitimize a canon of scholarship upon which that belief was based. And so uh, I was also motivated by Alan Sokol, who, who did the Sokol style. It's called a, a Sokol hoax uh, eponymously in the 90s when he published very, very now very, very famous paper. And Alan's become a very good friend of mine. Just talked to him today or emailed with him. And so that, that was another motivator. But we are doing students a disservice. We're, as I said, basing public policies on things that are simply not true. And we're really driving ourselves away from human flourishing. Mm. And we, we've got to reverse this course. But, yeah. but again, I've been screaming about this for over a decade and virtually nobody listened. So here we are now.
0: Yeah, I think people are listening. I mean, I fell into this and I had a dog to literally land on my doorstep. Because I work in the hand knitting industry, I have businesses there, and hand knitting got very woke and very nasty. So I got swept up in that that brouhaha, as it were, and I had to literally have my eyes opened. I thought, living down here, when it first started, I thought, that's a North American problem. It's not. It's a societal problem.
1: It, it is. You're, you're correct. It is an American cultural export. People need to understand it as such, and, and you could... I guess by argument by analogy, you could look at it. Islam is uh, Arabic cultural export that's found its way to Persia, Indonesia, other languages. Th- these are cultural exports. I was just in Australia months ago. I, I travel around the world with my friend Nice Wonder, and we make videos, st- st- epistemology videos. We do interviews, podcasts, etc. And you know, I was in—I don't even know how many meetings: deans, think tank people, journalists. And I was always struck most profoundly by the fact that Australia is about one year behind the United States. So all of their concerns, everything that they, they're about one year behind. I, I can't speak to New Zealand, obviously, because I haven't been there in a long time. Last time I was in New Zealand, I actually had a really interesting interview with a guy. Do you know Layton Smith?
0: Oh, he's in, a awesome. inter-
1: Interview with him. I was supposed to be interviewed for fifteen minutes, and the segments just kept going on and on and on. He's a he gave me a, the, the singularly the best bottle of wine I've ever had in my whole yeah. life. But anyway, um, so I can't speak to whether whether or not that's in New Zealand because. I I don't, I haven't been. We
0: we run about almost concurrently to Australia. We're a little bit further behind Australia. I watched a lot of your videos around the street epistemology you did in Australia, because to me, that gave me a litmus of where things potentially are here as well, because there are as much as New Zealanders would like to think we're very different. There are a lot of similarities and a lot of New Zealanders live in Australia, so Explain to our listeners what is street epistemology, what is the goal behind it, and what are the things that you are learning when you go from country to country doing this?
1: Oh, boy. Okay. So street epistemology, I coined the term in my, I think it was my 2013 book. Oh, here it is in my 2013 book, uh, Manual for Creating Atheists. And then I, I did my dissertation in the prisons with prison inmates to improve their critical thinking and moral reasoning. And I took those ideas, which are based on the Socratic method, and I developed and I expanded those. So street epistemology is a a way to help people through civil conversation and civil discourse make their ideas clear. It's a way to help them calibrate the confidence in their belief to the evidence that they have for the belief in a very non-threatening, non-confrontational way, as you can see from those videos. Mm There's no shouting, there's no gotchas, there's none of that. And so when I travel, I do something called spectrum street epistemology. So we put people on lines with neutral being in the middle, and then strongly disagree, disagree, slightly disagree on one side, and then the other side agree. It's basically a Likert scale. And then we'll ask them a claim, and they'll go to a line, or or not, they don't have to move at all. And then we'll ask them questions. I'll ask them questions both to facilitate understanding among the people in the game and to help them make their ideas clear. And they, they can, they're free to move anytime. And one of the things that's so interesting about the exercises, you or the game, whatever, however one want, would want to term it, is that you can see the physical manifestation of belief through questions. So people will, will physically move from a line when something you've said causes them to reevaluate what they believe.
0: Right. So what are some of the sort of topics that you cover?
1: Usually woke, but not always. Our most popular topic, oddly enough, is aliens. Everywhere we go around the world, that always comes up. You know, is the U.S. government in possession of extraterrestrial craft? Are we being visited? No but Literally, no matter where we go in the world, that comes up. But a lot of trans topics are very popular. Mm-hmm. People want to talk about that. So we write two or three topics on a board. And then we'll say, you can either pick one of these or do your own. And most of the time, most people will want to do their own topic.
0: Wow. That's interesting. Because one of the things I find is that art of civil discourse has deteriorated dramatically. And I've seen, I mean, we were a similar age. So I have certainly seen the difference from 30 years ago when I was working in a corporate environment where that was the norm to today where there are these very dogmatic approaches and woe betide if you fall outside of those lines because that would be career suicide so self-employment me all the way uh, right. have you seen in that 30-year time span from so casting your mind back what are the big overarching changes societally from a western civilization point of view have you seen
1: yeah, that's such a big question. So actually, that's why I wrote my second book, which oddly enough I haven't have here, uh, "How to Have Impossible Conversations." I have that sitting right over there on the oh, big well, stage. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're I'll, I'll, I'll sign it when Reid and I go to Australia, uh, go to New Zealand. Oh my God, I probably committed some great sin by mixing those two up. That's um, <laughs> so there is an incivility. It's been a move from this person doesn't have a particular fact to this is a bad person to this person is an existential threat. And I think it really got really, really bad around the, of course, the seeds were there. Trump, the pandemic, BLM, George Floyd. They were exacerbating cultural influences in the larger cultural milieu. But the lack of civility is stunning. And the other thing I've seen is Cushing and Dunning in the book, The Big Sort, talk about this. People have segmented, physically separated themselves from into belief communities. I mean, when I was a kid, my parents had all my, my parents were Democrats, but they had all kinds of like Republicans. They used to get in spirited conversations and go back to the next week. And you don't see that as much anymore. We were divided into ideological tribes. But I think the lack of civility is one thing. And the I was watching, an, I think it was on Netflix, a documentary with uh, Bill Buckley and Gore Vidal. They used to have these epic debates on ABC. And one of the things that we've seen is that and i don't mean this to be partisan i'm I'm trying to not make this partisan this is just a fact the left is allergic to any kind of criticism they simply and i consider myself a classical liberal i don't consider myself a conservative they simply will not speak to with rare exceptions of like you know fringe youtubers the mainstream left media legacy media simply will not take anyone or talk to anyone who challenges or questions the narrative. That also includes, by the way, your former guest, Helen Pluckrose. Mm -hmm. She's been disinvited from things, told that she's dangerous, which I actually correct, Helen, is extraordinarily dangerous to anybody who's an ideologue. And her book, Cynical Theories with James Lindsay, my writing partner, I think it's don't, I'm not, don't quote me on this, but it sold over 500,000 copies, well over. And that was intentionally left off the New York Times bestseller list. The same thing that they did to Jordan Peterson, right. his 12 rules book. So it's a complicated factor, but things have definitely changed in the culture. And I'm 57 in my life. There's just, just no question, not even in my lifetime, even in the last 20 years, the changes have expedited, I think, through those triggers and social media.
0: So classic liberalism, though, can it come back?
1: Uh, I guess let's define it. So the enlightenment values, free inquiry, free association, people can live any kind of lives they want. You want to be trans. You should be able to do that without any fear of discrimination or harassment. If you want to be gay, if whatever, whatever kind of life you, you want to lead, provided it doesn't harm other people. Yeah, it can come back. I think enlightenment values are worth fighting for. I think that it's. I do believe the dictum, all men yearn to be free, all people yearn to be free. I do believe it's engraved in the, in the Statue of Liberty. I do believe that you can rationally derive the the principles for a functioning civil society that are, those principles are univocal. The philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce calls it the, a community of ideal inquirers would agree if you if you remove your, your situatedness, as a word of the postmodernists like, I do think that those values are universal and rationally derivable. However, our current incarnation of Western liberalism and capitalism has some Achilles heels in it that we're seeing now with ideological takeover of engines of knowledge production like universities, out-of-control immigration. And I'm not talking about legal immigration, which is great. Every country needs legal immigration. And legal immigration has actually worked really well in Australia because they take in skilled laborers. and mm, just do the
0: same here. Mm.
1: Yeah, just parenthetically, the number one, and I'm not an economist, but the, the number one factor on whether an immigrant will integrate successfully to societies if he can make a good living if he's a skilled laborer so we have out of control illegal immigration which is another long conversation but the problems that western democracies are facing come back to popper's 1945 paradox of tolerance you know how much are we willing to tolerate the intolerant and now we have fringe groups of ideologues who have not only captured our institutions, but are basically holding the entire society hostage to their delusions. And the question is, how do we fight back? I would argue that at the end of fighting back, you will see the resurgence of classical liberalism.
0: Let's live and hope. And uh, We're about to go to the polls here, and we're seeing that now, that some of the traditional ideas are always on the cards, like health and education and the like. But for the first time, I'm seeing ideological ideas also being argued over within the electoral process and lead up, and we've never had that before. So this is quite a, a new place for us.
1: Gender ideology, is that what we're
0: talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. Yeah. So we've gone and entrenched, because New Zealand is so small, you've got to remember that like, we're only five and a half million people. Yeah. So we have a very linear governance system. We have... The ability to affect nationalized change across any system in this country is exceptionally straightforward when you look at, say, somewhere like the United States, for example. And this government has used the pandemic and the powers ensued with the pandemic to make cultural changes.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's something we should spend a moment lingering upon. That's contributing to the legitimacy crisis. The philosopher Jurgen Habermas wrote about that, I think it was in 1973 about the, I think the translation is legitimation crisis. But there's a crisis of confidence in the institutions is a crisis and people don't trust expertise to, and we need experts. You need, mm-hmm. I mean, when you go to a dentist, what are you gonna do? You want me to, you want me to fix your teeth? <laughs> That'd be a terrible idea. So we, we have a crisis of confidence in our institutions, in our academic institutions, In the United, I can't speak to New Zealand, but in the United States, in the judiciary, and the Congress, and we're facing problems now where people don't trust our institutions because they have either betrayed that trust or the experts are really not experts. They're there for some other reason, some exogenous characteristic that they didn't earn. In one sense, it's a complicated problem, but in another sense, it's not a particularly con- complicated problem. But that just, in aggregate, all the legitimacy crisis in institutions lends to the when you corrode the basis of trust in civil society, people claiming that the police are hunting down black people, or whatever, which is simply, which is simply not true. It's specifically, when you parse the data out for that, the consequence of that in aggregate is that y- you will see end of civilization kind of stuff. You know, people, mm. mobs, breaking into stores, higher incidents of violence, particularly predatory violence, crimes, crimes against people.
0: Douglas Murray covered a lot of that in The Madness of Crowds, didn't he? It
1: was a, it was a fantastic mm. book. It was a fantastic book. My friend Matt Thornton, I just wrote the afterward to his book, The Gift of Violence from Pitchstone Press. I also wrote the forward to a book from Rajiv Malhotra called Snakes in the Ganga, in which he talks about uh, wokeness as an American cultural export and how wokeness is affecting India and Indian institutions. So, this is not unique to New Zealand. I spent months in Hungary and, and Romania. Uh, the Europeans are dealing with the problem of wokeness. I wrote a piece, I think it was for uh, Spiked. So, this is actually interesting. We talk about this if you want. Or I'll, am I doing too much talking? I don't know.
0: You can talk as much as you like, darling.
1: So, <laughs> darling, that's nice. So, the way that wokeness weaves its way into the angle sphere. This is very complicated, but it's worth talking about for a minute. Is that wokeness only works because it traffics in the double meanings of terms? And every woke word will have two meanings. For example, equity, inclusion. Inclusion is probably the easiest one to explain. Inclusion doesn't mean we'd include everybody, you know, people in wheelchairs, et cetera. It means we restrict speech so they don't feel offended, so people feel included. But that only the primary meaning of a word will translate into a, another language, and so what will happen is you'll see people. And again, I, you know, I don't speak Hindu or whatever, but you know, they'll say like blah 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 equity blah 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 inclusion. But the reason they do that is because wokeness. There's nothing intrinsic to English that makes wokeness that gives it its linguistic and semantic power. It's that. Only the primary meaning of the word will translate. So for wokeness to infect a culture, you have to use the English word. That's basically it. And so Mm. you can't be a linguistic hegemon and just keep the words out. So I don't really know how you you would deal with that. But at least that's the mechanism for how it transmits itself culturally.
0: Well, it's been that bastardization of language, though, that has... Actually, fooled to use a Kiwi, sort of you pulled the wool over your eyes for many Kiwis. So, equity being a really great example, right? So, I've spoken to a number of friends with conversations. I'm a firm believer of what I call a courageous conversation. So, it's what we used to do over the dinner table and over a glass of wine all the time. You can't seem to do that today. And I like to have these conversations when I'm standing in the line of the supermarket or anywhere I am. And equity and equality is one that I find is a beautiful one to start with, because I'll say to some, somebody, yes, do you believe in equity? Explain to me what equity is, and they'll always give me the definition for equality.
1: Correct. That's a great example. So one of the things I'll ask people is, can you give me a single example of a sentence in which the word equity is swapped for the word equality, and the meaning of the sentence does not change? Nobody's been able to do that yet. And the reason they haven't been able to do that is because they're different words. And if you look in the literature and Helen Pluckrose did this in in cynical theories and elsewhere, and I've done this, James, we've all done this. I mean, this, this has been played repeatedly. It's not like they're trying to hide this. That's the other thing. It's they're screaming about it from the rooftops. They're literally publishing about it. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, and, and not fringe authors, Ibram X. Kendi, who's the, who has an endowed chair? Who's I don't know. He's sold millions of books. I don't know. I actually don't know exactly how many books he sold, but he's a he's an international best-selling author. He they allowed like, his book on the list. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, of course, of course, because he conforms to the narrative. Uh, you know, he's very specific in what equity is, and you know. Mm-hmm.
0: So he's the how to be an anti-racist author for our listeners, if they're not familiar with him.
1: The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to future, mm-hmm. etc. So he's pro. He's pro-discrimination. I mean, everybody's really pro-discrimination. You know, discrimination just means, uh, from the Latin, discriminare, which means just weed out alternatives. But he's pro-discrimination on the basis of an exogenous characteristic like race based upon a historical oppression variable. And so if, you know, I mean, my ancestors were in a genocide. I'm I'm half Armenian. Um, but it, but say, say somebody was from, I don't know, Finland or something. And, and they have white skin they the term that is abandoned around is uh, white passing so so uh, they often you hear this with Jews or they're white passing or with Asians they're white adjacent uh, these these individuals are really completely obsessed with race to just totally and sexuality they're totally obsessed with things that nobody should think about certainly in the fo- former category maybe the latter in one's personal life so I don't know where I was going with this. Well, just-
0: language. We were oh. talking about so language. So another example here, and you mentioned it just briefly before, we had a columnist in our biggest daily newspaper a couple of weekends ago say in a subheading that since the visit of Posey Parker, Kelly Jean Payne, yeah. to New Zealand, the increase of incidences of trans genocide on yeah. social media has increased. I
1: don't even I know have where-
0: a real issue with that
1: transgenocide means there's a great book by my buddy Wilfred riley called hate crimes hoax if you parse out the data it's just it's just again i'm not going to recapitulate his body of work but it's just not true and everybody loves to say that there's a, a transgenocide there's simply no evidence of that whatsoever i mean not only is there i mean that's a pretty strong word you know my ancestors were in a genocide but genocide is a that's not a word to be bandied about but it's a word that people use as an instrument for their for instrumental ends to, to achieve their own political purposes.
0: I think the language is getting more and more hyperbolic because initially when this all started, all you need to say to somebody is, oh, you're being racist. And that shut down the conversation like that. Whereas right. I think a number of people, it's a bit the the crying wolf is beginning to happen. And they're like, oh no, I'm not. And so you need to come up with stronger and stronger language in order to gain the same effect if you're somebody who is using language as a weapon against people that are pushing, pushing back against your bad ideas.
1: Yeah, that that's right. And we, we see that. So I guess the question is, does the word racist still carry the kind of stigma? I I think, I guess it depends in the circles in which one traffics or, or the, con- the conversations of the, the people, but yeah, there's no question. There's been an arms race, a linguistic arms race where people are, you know, bigot, homophobe, and, and they're and they're linking these these words together in, in in long awkward sentences.
0: So when you've got the groups, I read um, Matthias Desmet's Psychology of Totalitarianism. So he talks okay. about the sort of these, these mass formations and those who are most deep in the mass, the ones that are deepest in the ideology, which I think it's they're difficult to touch. But there are those ones who are adjacent, which I think your street epistemology is a brilliant way of setting sparks and ideas. Is that a way you believe that can break those transmission? How do you break the transmission of these people to actually spark an idea to have them potentially looking in a different direction or at least thinking more openly about what's going on in the culture in their life?
1: Yeah, I, I thought about this, this. I'm fascinated by beliefs and what people believe and why people believe things that are disproportionate to the evidence. There's no question in my mind from, decades of studying publishing writing speaking about this around the world that street epistemology is the way uh or or maybe it's one of the best ways i think you can look at it as a structure at the top of the pyramid there's theory institutions and downstream of that is belief so theory the grievance study stuff the fake papers hit at the theory and then institutions are like you know aclu uh american civil liberties you You know splc who's totally gone absolutely gone off the rails uh new york times kind of legacy institutions and then beliefs what people believe and so if you you want to help people align their beliefs to reality then street epistemology and a very non we we know the the data is very clear that people change their beliefs from a, a point of view of safety not only physical safety but psychological safety and comfort and so we need to create environments and spaces where people can honestly and openly reflect on our, on their ideas. The problem is that we have a, a culture that's overtly hostile to that. And you're told that there's this kind of weird tribalism and where, where people want to belong to a group. I mean, I think this is a human phenomenon, but people want to, it's more important for people to belong to a group than it is to be right. People want to be loved more than when more than they want to figure out what's true. And so, you need to think about a mechanism that allows people to truly be honest with themselves and open with themselves. That's not an easy thing to do, but it's street epistemology. I think it's the best method that's that. And, you know, when I coined the term and came up with it, the community itself has evolved very quickly. And has taken that, and you can see videos all over the internet. There's a great guy, Anthony Magnabosco, has I don't know thousands of videos. Other people around the world have videos explaining how to do this. So it's totally so. I don't make any money off of this. I mean, it's totally. Free. I have a nonprofit called National Progress Alliance, but I go around the world and I do street epistemology based on donations. I don't. I'm not. You know. I in fact, I encourage people to do this. It's free. Anybody can use it. If you're an educator and you want to use it, just watch some of the videos and. And you can use it to help students at any age, college, any age, uh, elementary school, figure out, think through the material in a more thoughtful way.
0: Yeah, I've got one last question. And I asked it of Helen and, and she wasn't entirely sure. I've got a theory around this ideology that uh, it is bred with an affluence. So in order for it to th- not only survive, but thrive, it needs a strong economic basis to do that. Many Western countries are facing very strong financial headwinds right now. How do you think that those financial headwinds will actually affect the ideology and will that struggle when people are actually having having their comfort disrupted yeah, that, that a, will actually op- open a crack to that new ideas in?
1: that's a terrific question rob henderson i just did an interview I just released it today coincidentally enough calls that a luxury belief that that term has a lot of traction now Th- there's no question that you know i've often said to myself okay, what happens when these people encounter something real like what happens if there's i don't know some you know i don't even want to say this because it sounds so terrible but it, like what happens if there's a nuclear war or you know R- russia just starts nuking ukraine and this something it escalates Or China, whatever. I don't even want to put that, those ideas in people's head. But what happens when something real goes on? I think that then I, so now it's speculation, but I think all this woke silliness will fade into the background and people's Maslowian kind of immediate needs will be reprioritized or overwritten. I do think it is a luxury belief. I do think that there is a danger, however, when with the economic if things turn uh, uh just some some countries now have 20 25 infl- percent inflation i'm thinking in eastern europe and inflation's bad that the dollar's not looking for uh, looking at i'm not i'm not making a prediction don't trade currency based on anything i'm about to say but you know we're not gonna it looks like that uh since we left Bretton woods we've had uh, gone off the gold standard there's been some longer term issues that you know petrodollars might not be traded in dollars and the dollar might not be the world's reserve currency, et etc. But my, my point in saying, which would mean inflation, but my point in saying that is, what do we do economically when we're faced with some very, very, I mean, severe problems? I mean, the only reason we've been able to go crazy and print all this money is precisely for those, those two reasons. I think that we run a danger of becoming more woke. And we also have the concurrent possibility of people finally realizing that they've been trafficking in some pretty divisive, dangerous nonsense. I'm not a a predictor, but I think that the history of Western intellectual thought has shown us that there is no ideological necessity. I I do believe that the moral arc bends towards justice, but that's over the long period of time. I think that my own view is that we will see wokeness fade. Wokeness is dying now in the United States. It's It's definitely on the retreat. I don't think it is because you're about a year behind us Yeah, um,
0: we, we but, I think we hit peak woke and the turning point for us was the resignation of Jacinda Ardern because she yeah. was the, the woke leader in chief
1: right and you know you can try to expedite that by pushing your institutions into further ill repute just very quickly so the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately and I've been I, I go around the world and I interview people I interviewed Michael Shermer about this uh, Richard Dawkins about this and other people. I'm fascinated by this thing I term the substitution hypothesis is that the idea is that when one ideology falls, like when Christianity falls, then people pick up a new ideology. They pick up a new religion. They pick up wokeness. Now that wokeism is going to fall, what's next? I I have my, uh, I've I've spoken about my rather fringe belief about what, what will come next. I'm kind of a Nostradamus of this thing, of this stuff. So we'll see what happens. But I find it fascinating that the idea that belief is just the default, the brain is the hardware, the software is just w- whatever culture one is, along with psychological propensities and dispositions. But if the substitutional hypothesis is true, Dawkins and, and, uh, and others uh, don't think it's true. I don't know if it's true. But if it's true, then something very, very soon is going to re- replace wokeism.
0: I, I think it's coming. I can, you, can s- you can smell it in the air for, yeah, for sure hope, hope it's benign. yeah yeah well that's one of the things that i know helen and i discuss well thank you so much now where can people find a your body of work i know you've been doing some great interviews your conversations with peter bogosian i love so oh, where you. are the best places for people to connect with your work
1: on uh, youtube at peter bogosian b-o-g-h-o-s-s-i-n twitter at peter bogosian uh, Substack. God, we're on basically every, every platform, but those are the biggies. Twitter, YouTube, Substack. I'm on Instagram. I don't use it very much, but, and then we have a nonprofit, the National Progress Alliance. So if anybody's feeling particularly generous and they want to, they want me to come to New Zealand, I'm happy to come to New Zealand and we'll do street epistemology and talk at universities and teach people how to have impossible conversations, et cetera. But, I need some kind of, uh, and again, I, I draw a, a modest salary from my nonprofit, but I try to get my expenses covered, hotel, uh, flights, et cetera. And, and all of this is in, tr- truly is in the service of
0: humanity. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time this morning. This has been Peter Boghossian here on Reality Check Radio. Make sure you don't disappear. Still great content to come, including my sidekick, Marty, is back with Media Matters, as well as the Woke News of the Week. Here on ICR.
1: You're listening to Counterculture on
0: ICR.